0: Good morning, everyone. How are you guys doing? What beautiful worship we had this morning. I was back there jumping up. You couldn't see me, but my name is Carly Burns, and I am a worship leader here with our student in our adult ministry. And today, um, I will be reading scripture from Revelation 2 to continue our scripture reading. To the church in Pergamum write. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write. These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it.
1: Well, good morning. Well, hey, um One of the things I love about this church is that uh, even if you try to sneak in um, and just try to come and hang out in the back, this church is one of the warmest, welcoming places I've ever been. So we had a few guests lead us in worship. And so would you uh, give a huge Brookwood welcome and thank you for the band that so faithfully led us uh, today? Yes, indeed. And uh, one of the things I do want to draw your attention to is when you walk out on the way out, there is a thank you Perry card. And what we're asking is on the 30th anniversary, we're going to take a small moment uh, just to thank our founding pastor for all the years of his faithfulness uh, leading. He'll still be a part of our church. He's teaching next week, but just uh, we wanted to take some time to honor him. He'll hate this, but uh, that's one of the reasons we want to honor him, because even as we were singing Jesus at the Center, Uh, He has spent his time here building a church where it's not based on a personality or a pastor, but Jesus Christ, amen? And so uh, I wanna encourage you, overwhelm him, bombard him, and uh, make him a little uncomfortable uh, with some notes. uh, If you would, grab those on the way out. Now, I mentioned this, uh, if you're new with us, let me just say it again, but um, as I stepped into this role, people have asked me all throughout the summer, like, what's the strategy moving forward? Like, what's the staff structure? What's the new thing you're going to do? What's the different thing? What's the thing that's got you excited? And uh, I shared last week, and I will continue to share that I want to continue what has always been true of Brookwood, that at the center of this church is not a pastor, a personality, a strategy, a system, a mission. It is one person, the name above all names, the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. That's what we are going after. And so you can make some noise for that. Come on. We'll wake you up a little bit. We got 30 minutes together, uh, but one of the things that uh, that we're doing is we're not just making this cute little title. We are actually spending the entire year talking about Jesus at the center. And so we're going to be talking about the parables of Jesus. We're going to be talking about uh, the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be talking about the birth of Jesus and what that means. Uh, we're going to be talking on Jesus teaching on how to pray. And a few weeks ago, I kicked off a series: Jesus at the center of our church as we talk about what words Jesus would give to the churches in Revelation. So the first week I talked on Ephesus, and really it was a call to repentance. Last week I talked on Smyrna. It was a suffering church. And this week we are speaking about Pergamum. And I wanna give you a little bit of a spoiler alert that at the center of this church, what you're really gonna find is Jesus is gonna go after one thing, that they have a spirit of compromise. Now, compromise doesn't always have to be a bad thing. In fact, compromise can help you find middle ground. It can help you find a solution. We're told as children that compromise can be a good thing. Like the other day, my wife and I were trying to figure out where we wanted to eat. And I wanted barbecue and she wanted Mexican food. So we compromised and we ate Mexican food because that's what she wanted, right? <laughs> but I did, I did give her a hard time a little while ago. I, cra- I came across this meme on women choosing where to eat. It was too good not to share. Girls have a hard time choosing where to eat because the last time they chose, they doomed all of humanity. (sighs) If it's in the Bible, folks, I preach it, as unpopular as it may be. But you think about the idea of compromise. Compromise, again, can be a good thing, but if you compromise on building materials, or if you compromise on security, or if you compromise on health, that could be a costly thing. And again, there is something that is good on preferences and compromise, but what I want you to see at the start of this talk, what I want you to really get at the core of this is that any form of spiritual compromise is always deadly to your faith. If there is any part of us that compromises and keeping Jesus at the center of the life, of the church or Jesus at the center of our life. It is always deadly, it is always costly, and it is always detrimental. And this is what you find going on with this church in Pergamum. They had some good things going, but somewhere they got apathetic when it comes to the area of compromise. Now, the the letter starts off in Revelation 2, chapter 12 that we just uh, read that says, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. And you read this and you, you could just go, what in the world is happening? I mentioned this the last couple of weeks, but angel really is best uh, interpreted messenger. And so what would happen is uh, the, the writers are, you know, John would give uh, the, the letter that was from Jesus and he would write it to the angel, which is really the pastor or the leader. And the pastor or the leader would take this letter, he would stand in front of the congregation and he would read what Jesus would commend and what he would confront. And so that's really what's going on here. But notice this. These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. You go, what is happening here? There was a term in Roman culture called us gladi. Us gladi, say that one time. Us gladi. You can do that a little better. Us gladi. Very good. Fun word to say. What it means though, is this, the right of the sword. So as Rome began to expand and as it conquered new territories, as it began to grow too large for Rome to govern everyone, what they did was they actually appointed governors in different provinces and they would actually give them the full backing of Rome so they could govern, they could discern, and they could ultimately do capital punishment if they deemed it necessary. And the sign that you were backed by Rome, that you had us gladi, was this double-edged sword that you wore on your hip showing that you had authority and power. So what Jesus is doing here, he's drawing off this imagery and think about what he's saying. He's going, some of you think that Caesar has all the power. Some of you think that Rome has all the power. Some of you think that the governors have all the power. But he is writing going, I am the one who has all the power. I am the center of the universe. I am the alpha and the omega. I am the one with no beginning and end. He is establishing himself as the one true God. And so he's gonna go on to speak to this church with that in mind. Now, when you look at Pergamum, it was a very important city. It was maybe one of the most important cities besides Ephesus. It was really known for three things. It was known for politics. It was known for hospitals. And it really was known for cult worship. And that's why you get this interesting phrase. If you didn't have the context, you read verse 13 where Jesus says this, I know where you live where Satan has his throne and you go, what is going on here? But Jesus knows something and the culture would have understood something that we could miss. This was a perverse culture with dark, eerie cult worship. And you could almost sense that there was demonic and, and almost uh, spiritual forces in this city. Now I can't unpack every one of the gods they would worship or the goddesses they would worship. But I just wanna show you Uh, some of the culture in which they would have these cult practices. Let me just show you the first temple, which would be one of the temples they'd worship at, the Temple of Athena. Athena, you might know, is the goddess of war. She is also the goddess of wisdom. And they actually had the second largest library in the ancient world in Pergamum. Uh, The the largest was actually in Alexandria. But people would go to worship Athena. This was a picture of the, the statues about 10 feet tall that would lead to the temple where, where people would go and worship Athena. And do you know what they'd say when they'd worship Athena? As people in this culture walked in, they would say that Athena is the way, the truth, and the life. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? In fact, in John fourteen six, Jesus says this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You'll see another temple where they used to go worship. It was the temple of Zeus. Behind me you will see this is an altar, a replica of of the altar they would have had in ancient Pergamum. And it's actually a massive, massive altar. It's It's about four stories tall. What's interesting is this altar, a portion of this altar was actually shipped to Berlin during World War II. And some people talk about uh, that Hitler would use it to sort of advertise his conquest because he was the one who was bringing reign and rule to the broken world. Because when they would go in in Pergamum to worship, they, they had this picture of Zeus fighting the Titans. And it was said about Zeus, when you went to worship him, you would proclaim, he is the God of gods. He is the king of kings and he is the Lord of Lords. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? In fact, in Revelation chapter 17, this is what's said about Jesus, but the Lamb will triumph over them because he is the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. I mentioned this last week with Smyrna, but one of the things that was big in the ancient world was the worship of Caesar's. But it's interesting, when Augustus Caesar was born, you might know this if you studied history, he actually referred to himself as the son of God. He believed he was the son of God, come to reign and rule and bring peace to the world. Of course, his peace would be through military and conquest. But what's interesting is, when people would go to worship uh, Caesar in that particular temple, do you know what they would say about Caesar? They would say there is no other name under heaven which man can be saved than that of Caesar. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? In fact, what's interesting, Acts chapter four, this is said about Jesus. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven, given to mankind by which we must be saved. There was another temple, the temple of Demeter, and Demeter was really the goddess of agriculture and grain. And what's interesting about this, is that you would actually have to take some blood of an animal, sprinkle it, and it was said that then you were holy and pure enough to enter into the presence of Demeter. But when you went into this temple, do you know what they would say as they worshiped Demeter? She was the goddess of agriculture and grain, so they would say that she is the one who gives us our daily bread. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? In fact, in Matthew chapter 6, when Jesus is teaching the disciples to pray... They ask him, how do you pray? And he says, pray like this, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then in verse 11, he goes on to say, give us this day, our daily bread. But one of the things I am so excited about at the end of this series, we're actually gonna spend some time unpacking the Lord's prayer. Because as I met with different small groups and different people, they would say, hey, you know, I feel comfortable reading the Bible. But if I'm honest, when I pray, I feel distracted. I feel like I don't know fully how to pray. And I've said this quote before, but it's one of my favorite quotes from a writer, Ian Bounds. He says, only God can move mountains, but prayer moves God. There is just something about the intimacy and the movement of God when people begin to pray, but oftentimes we don't feel comfortable praying. And so we're gonna give you some tools. We're gonna give you some helpful resources. In fact, uh, JC and I are shooting some content this week for small groups and uh, for some of the materials that we'll give you that I think is just gonna help your confidence and your batting average in prayer. But I really, really think the idea of all of these things going on start to get at the culture of that day. Now, let me show you one other temple. Uh, one other temple, the Temple of Asclepius. This is probably the creepiest and the eeriest one. How many of you actually like snakes? Anybody in the house? Okay, not, not many. Uh, there are three things I'm convinced will not be in heaven. Three things. Snakes, shots, and the DMV. You cat people were wondering, huh? Got to keep you on your feet. But if you don't like snakes, you would hate this temple. Because one of the things you would do, you notice this, this uh, picture back here. This was the god Asclepius, who was the god of medicine and healing. He was often depicted as uh, someone with a staff, with a serpent or a snake around it. But what you would do, because he was the God of medicine and healing, you would go in this temple, it's awful, and you would take this tonic, it would knock you out, you would lay on this dark floor, and then all of these snakes, these non-lethal snakes, would begin to crawl all over you. And they said, literally, there was healing in the belly of these snakes. They would then interpret your dream. You would go meet with the doctor, and they would give you this remedy. Now, here's what's fascinating to actually go and do this, to go into the temple, you had to say that Asclepius was the healer and the savior of the world. Again, you can see that when Jesus is referring to the place where Satan has his throne, where does Satan have his throne? feels like all over, doesn't it? It feels like this is a place that has dark, eerie cult worship. And one of the worst things is the very things that Jesus has said about himself, these other gods and goddesses we're now using and Christians are being pressured. So this is the culture and the backdrop you have. So when John writes the church in Pergamum, he just assumes you understand the things that are happening. And then he's going to, in essence, through Jesus, commend them on what they're doing well in this perverse, eerie culture. And then he's going to confront them on what they're not doing well. And the first thing he's going to do is he's going to commend them on what they're doing well. And the first thing he's going to say this church has done well is that they are bold. They are bold. Listen to what it says in Revelation 2, 13. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Now, this is important. Notice, notice that, they, that really they were being bold. The culture that we live in, in American culture currently, it's important that we understand it's really a secular culture now. What I mean by that is if you study secularism, what secularism says is that you can believe whatever you want, but you just can't push Jesus or religion at the center. So really what what secularism at its core does is it makes the self the sovereign person or the authority. And so again, believe what you want, do what you want. No one can tell you what to do. You live your best life. Just don't put any religion in the center of the culture. Now in the culture where the Christians are living in Pergamum, it's not a secular culture. It's a very religious culture. In fact, most people get this mixed up. Christians weren't being persecuted because they believed in Jesus. They were being persecuted because they were not worshiping other gods. They claimed there was only one God who was the way, the truth, and the life, and that's Jesus. And so in a religious culture, you have to understand that they believed in that day in the ancient world, if you had plagues, if you had famine, if you had issues or troubles, it's because the gods were angered and they needed to be worshiped and appeased. So they weren't trying to silence Christians. They were just getting them to worship all these other gods and wanting them to do that. And Jesus goes, hey, not only have you been faithful, you've been bold to say that I am the only one true God. And so he's affirming that. But then he also goes on to affirm their faithfulness, their faithfulness. So first their boldness, but second, their faithfulness. Now you notice this, this interesting phrase, that Antipas, my faithful witness. And you go, who is that? Well, the truth is we really don't know. Uh, This is the only time Antipas is mentioned in the Bible. There's one other time an Antipas is mentioned, but that's Herod Antipas. So what's interesting about this is all we know is that he was martyred, killed for being faithful. Some people think that one of the ways he was killed was he was put in this bronze bull and burned alive because that was a, a popular way they would torture people back there. But other people think it was gladi That as Antipas would not worship the gods and the goddesses of that day, that he was put to death by the sword. Regardless, we don't know what that is. We just know he was killed for being faithful. And I wanna encourage you with something this morning. As I was reading this, you know what stuck out about this? There is not one mention of a title, of a position, or a platform. See, in American culture, you got to think about this. The way that you get your identity, the way that you really value, the way that you are seen is if you do something significant. The way that you're noticed in American culture is you do something noteworthy. And if you do something to be seen and noticed, then you get accolades, you get praise, you get elevated in culture and society. That is the complete opposite in Christian faith. Your identity, the, your, your, your understanding of being a son or daughter of God is what drives your identity. So as a child of God, what you understand is you are not significant because of what you do. You are significant because you are seen by a significant God. You are noticed because you're a son or daughter of a noteworthy God. And the reason I tell you this is what happens is if you don't get this right, you have all this performance and striving to try to meet up and create your identity in this world. But notice this, there is no mention of any title, any position or platform. You don't read Antipas, the PhD. We love titles in American culture and there's nothing bad about it, but it doesn't say Antipas, the president and CEO. It doesn't say Antipas, the senior pastor. It just says Antipas. For all we know by the world standards, he never wrote a book, he never pastored anyone. He never really led people to Christ. We don't know what happens, but we know that he garnered the attention of heaven. And how do you garner the attention of heaven? It is one thing, one thing, one thing. You keep Jesus at the center. That's it. That is what causes him to be noticed more and more, because heaven really is not interested in fame, it's interested in faithfulness, amen? It's not interested in glory, like we are in American culture, it's interested in godliness. Heaven is not interested in success, it's interested in servanthood, and this is difficult for me in American culture. In fact, I was thinking about this, even in church, unknowingly, we bring some of the American culture in here because we elevate certain positions. We elevate positions like mine or people who lead worship on stage. But you know, I was just thinking about all the people who have served our church so faithfully behind the scenes and no one really notices them. In fact, I just wanted to show you a couple people that I was thinking about this week as I was thinking about heaven. And first is James Seagraves over there on the right-hand side. James has been serving on the the medical response team and the security team and doing um, traffic for 16 years. Isn't that amazing? 16 years. I just love this. Cause it's hot folks. It's like Satan's sauna out there. It's miserable. And I've seen some of you, I love you, but some of you are absolutely crazy drivers, insane. You'll encounter the presence of God, then you got road rage. And you think of someone like James. In fact, I remember the first time I preached here was October, almost a year ago. And I was trying to sneak in, I was parking in the front parking lot. You know, the first person who said had hey to, hey to me was James. He just came up to me, he goes, I know you. And he just said this, very simply. He said, whatever happens, I want you to know we're praying for you. I thought, what a gift that someone day in and day out behind the scenes, just being faithful, faithful in the mundane, faithful in greeting someone, waving when they're pulling into a parking spot. You know, I heard about Kim Bragg. I got to know her a little bit, but one of the things that as we were talking, I was asking some staff members and the reason that uh, she stuck out is because two people independently said, you know the thing about Kim? she will find the hidden jobs that need to get done in the church and she'll do them. She'll find the thing no one wants to do. She'll be doing the behind the scenes check-in. She'll be getting all the greeting things. She'll be cleaning up after the students. She served faithfully for years. And you just go, this is a picture of what heaven seems to value, which is the antithesis sometimes in American culture because heaven is not interested in fame. It's interested in faithfulness. Heaven is not interested in glory in the way that we understand, it's godliness. Heaven's not interested in success, it is servanthood. What a picture, what an encouragement this morning because some of us, we don't like where we are. We don't like the circumstances we are in. And some of you, you feel like you have the grain of the grind of the mundane. You wake up, you do the same things, you just grind it out. Can I just tell you, what garners the attention of heaven is not platforms, it's day-to-day faithfulness in the mundane, faithfulness. Here's a man, Antipas, who garners the attention of heaven. But in the midst of this, Jesus is going to confront something. He's going to confront, like I mentioned, a spirit of compromise. Listen to what he says, Revelation chapter 2, 14 through 15. Nevertheless, I hold this against you. There are some of you who hold the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to entice the Israelites so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching, teachings of the Nicolaitans. And so what I want you to see about this is really what you're gonna find is that a spirit of compromise. Do you notice that twice the word hold is used? Twice the word hold is used. This is a strong word in Greek. It means to hold tightly and be in, and unwilling to let go to hold tightly, to grasp tightly, and to be unwilling to let go. Uh, Years ago at our last church that we were at in Texas, we had this opportunity where we brought in one of those um, carnivals, little city carnivals that they come in the church parking lot. We thought it'd be a great way just to bless the community. And so we did this carnival ride and we we invited the community in. my son wanted to go on one of the Tilt-A-Whirl rides. Now, I'm not a big roller coaster guy. I don't love paying to get beaten back and forth on a roller coaster. But my son wanted to go, so I went. And you know on those roller coaster rides where they like strap you in, but this one had one of those bars that they lower. And I don't know if the guy wasn't paying attention, but my son, the bar that he has, it's like up. And so we start going 20 seconds in this ride and my son is literally slipping out. He's about to fall out of this ride. Now I am not an overly strong man, all right? But in that moment with superhuman strength, I grabbed my son, I pressed him against the seat. And I thought, Jesus, I don't know when you're calling my son home, but it's not gonna be today in the church parking lot on the Tilt-A-Whirl, all right? <laughs> and so I held, in fact, the ride was over and it was like he was just still pressed against this thing because there was no way on God's green earth I was letting go. And why I tell you this is that what Jesus is saying to this church, he's saying, some of you, you have held on to me so tightly. You have kept me at the center and you have been faithful, faithful, faithful. But some of you have slipped. You've loosened your grip on me. And as a result, you started to follow these teachings of other people. And it's starting to create a spirit of compromise. Can I just say, probably if you're in a dry spot right now, if you're in a spot, because we all feel that, right? Even as a pastor, I feel this. There are times you come in and everything's great. But can I just simply suggest if you're in a dry spot, then probably if you trace your spiritual journey, there is some area in your life that has been compromised. In fact, what happens is if you shoot a rocket to the moon and it is one degree off, by the time it gets there, it is miles and miles and miles off. And what happens, what the enemy does is he gets you just to compromise a little bit. He gets you to this place where you go. You know, it's just one word. It's just, it's just this one thing. And what happens is, as you compromise, it starts to affect your journey. And so, in essence, this is what's happening in this culture. And Jesus says to this church, "Some of you, you've grasped onto the teachings of Balaam and the Nicolaitans." Now, that can be really confusing. What you need to understand is Balaam was a prophet of compromise. In fact, if you want to read later about this, you can read in Numbers chapter 22 through 25 and Numbers 31, but really Balaam was a prophet of compromise. And so notice what Jesus is saying, like Balaam, the church in some areas, some of them have begun to compromise and it mentions sexual immorality and food sacrifice to idols, which is another way of saying some of them were engaging in the practices of that temple. They were worshiping those gods and goddesses because that was associated with those things. Same thing with the Nicolaitans. But listen to what it's so interesting when you actually look at what the term Balaam literally means. Do you know what it literally means? Balaam in Greek means devour. And the word Nicolation literally means conqueror. So let me just say this very clearly. What devours and conquers Christians is a spirit of compromise. It's just anything you do that keeps Jesus from the center. Listen to what Tony Evans said. Compromise is the cancer of the church and we must rid it of Christ's body. While Christians can compromise on preferences, they cannot compromise on principles. Principles. We can't be one way on Sunday and another on Monday. This is a major problem among Christians in America today. We don't take a stand. We don't keep our standards. We merely shift to satisfy society. And so in essence, what, what's going on here is Jesus is going, you can't have me at the center plus something else. It's me and nothing else. And then in Revelation chapter two, verse 16, it goes on to say, repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. And again, he's drawing on the imagery of this us gladi. And what he's showing is he is the one who dictates the future. That the Christians should not be afraid or worried about Caesar or the governors. They weren't the ones with the real power, Jesus was. And he's calling the people to repent. He's calling them to be faithful. And then he goes on in verse 17, whoever has ears, let them hear what the spirit says to the churches. Let me just pause right here because I haven't mentioned this in any of the other sermons. Do you notice that this is the one phrase that you're going to find is repeated in every sermon? Whoever has ears, let them hear. And let me just say this. The reason I think this is so important, it is possible to come in this room and to just be a million miles away. It's possible to come in and just be distracted on your phone or distracted thinking about the future. And we all struggle with that. But what I love about this is that anyone who comes in hungry, the Bible says he is going to give you spiritual eyes and spiritual ears to hear. Which means when you come in and you go, you know what, I'm not in the best place. I'm in a dry space, but I'm gonna enter in. What happens is the spirit of God will meet you. And so some of us, this is sobering. Some of us will have encounters with God throughout the next year that will transform our lives. And others, others of us are just gonna be distracted. We're just gonna be busy. But then it goes on to say to the one who's victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it. I known I know only to the one who receives it. Now this term white stone, you go, what's happening here? Well, in that culture, in Roman culture, the way you really got tickets or invitations was a white stone. In fact, if there was an important event, you would be given a white stone and that was a ticket. It was your way to gain access to an event or a party or a gathering you could not have access to without that white stone. And Jesus is drawing on this imagery and he's showing that really, there is a place that none of us had access. That's heaven, that's the presence of God because sin blocked us. But Jesus did the unthinkable. He came to this earth. He loved, he loved, he served. Even with his last breath, he is forgiving and serving people. And because of his great price, we can now have the presence of God. We can experience the glory of heaven. But it was far more costly than a white stone, how we granted access. It was every last drop of Jesus' blood. And so he's showing us this imagery that we can be faithful because he was first faithful and he first loved us. Let me just close with this. I wanna just show you, you know, when you think about compromise, because it's easy to come here a service like this and then just walk out, but I, I just really want you to ask, in your life, is there any area that you would go, hey, I love Jesus, but maybe, maybe there's an area or a spirit of compromise that's just sort of subtly creeped in. Because again, usually for most of us, it's not the big things that are gonna derail our faith. It's just a little bit of a spirit of compromise that creeps in. And so maybe one of the things that's easy, at least for me, to have a spirit of compromise is around work or is around jobs. You know, when it comes to your job, let me just ask you a question. A lot of people might know that you have certain passions and you have certain hobbies and that people know what you do for a living. But let me just ask you this, when it comes to your job, do the people around you know the most important thing in your life that you know Jesus and you love him? Or what about this? If you're anything like me for years, I found my identity and work as a pastor. I just worked all the time because it was just one of those things where I love success and I loved achievement. And it's so easy sometimes, maybe the reason we neglect our families sometimes or we neglect God is because if we're honest, We just derive our identity from performing and doing things. Or maybe it's the opposite with your job. Because the truth is, I imagine a room like this. There are some of you that love your job. There's probably some of you that can't stand your job. And sometimes what I find is when we don't always love our job, we have a little bit of self-pity that keeps us from just being present and loving our family and loving God because we just think, man, I thought life was supposed to be way different. And it's not like you're doing anything evil. It's just what happens is that spirit of compromise comes in and it keeps you from following God and being faithful right where you are. Maybe it's not your job, maybe it's money. You know, maybe it's money. The reason I think I speak more about money than maybe any other subject is because I really believe that before God can get a hold of a human heart, he's gotta get a hold of our wallets. And people don't like when you talk about money, but, and you're right, sometimes you can talk about money too much and then people give sort of begrudgingly. Let me say this, I absolutely believe that. You can give without loving God, 100%. You can write a check and go, oh, Brian keeps talking about money. It's gonna give more money. But you can give without loving God, but you cannot love God without giving. You just can't do it. And so you give not because it's obligation, you give because God's transformed your life. And we all have to pay different things. We all have to give back different ways. We've got to give it to the government. We give it to our kids, we give it to the bills. But when you trace where you give your money, where is your heart at? And maybe you go, you know what? I'm not doing anything evil, but there is a little bit of compromise in this one area. And God wouldn't condemn you. He wouldn't beat you up. He just invites you to invite him into this area. Maybe it's morals. You know, the culture has shifted so much. Let me just say this really clearly. There is nothing that will kill the life of God in you quicker than lust and pornography. It just sucks the life, the spirit life in you quicker than almost anything else. And what I've noticed is as culture has sort of quote unquote progressed or evolved the things that we used to call sin and evil, we no longer call them those things. Truth is that I have a lot of friends who are gay and they've stayed at my house. In fact, one stayed at my house about a year and a half ago, and I love them. But I'm very clear with them, you can stay at my house, I love you, but the Bible is crystal clear, and it's been crystal clear for thousands of years that marriage is really reserved between a man and a woman. And what I find is, as culture pressures us, sometimes in a way to respond and not be outdated, we can just slip a little bit on our morals. And what Jesus might be saying is maybe we've compromised in that area. Maybe it's in marriage. Interesting enough, according to Pew Research, do you know that less than 1% of marriages, less than 1% of marriage end in divorce when they pray daily together? Listen, in the seasons of life, like my wife and I are in, sometimes it's just enough to get the kids in bed without killing each other. So we've all got struggles. This is not to beat us up. It's just to say, hey, if we're not careful, we can get so busy, we can become roommates. We can just compromise in our marriage and keeping Christ at the center of that thing. Maybe for other people, you know, it's family and it's about busyness. And sometimes if we're honest, we are so busy and overwhelmed, we don't have time for much stuff, much less keeping God at the center. And let me just say this, I'm gonna do a series in a couple of years on what it means to be a godly man. Listen, I I just long for the day, and I believe Brookwood is primed for this. I long for the day when we have a church, and I believe we have it, but even more godly men leading in culture and society. Because it isn't interesting. You find men will lead in all different places. Like you'll have men lead in sporting events. They'll lead in cooking events. They'll lead in fantasy football. Listen, I'm not judging. I have a fantasy football draft tonight, and I pray God blesses my team. There's no judgment whatsoever. But I am saying, isn't it interesting for men that they will lead in all sorts of areas, but when it comes to the faith, we just tend to outsource that to the church or our spouse. And I'm going, maybe God's saying to you today, even if you're in a dry spot with Jesus and you go, listen, I'm not even that strong of a Christian. Maybe God's giving you a vision today to wake up to him and be the godly man for your family and culture and society. And so this is an invitation to go, maybe we've compromised in this area. Here's another one that's not on the the chart, but just this morning, the Lord convicted me. Sometimes it's easy to compromise in speech, speech. And so there are times where I go, God, I seem to be doing great in all these. And then God would be like, hey, about that. Remember last week, you talked pretty negatively about that person. I'm like, yeah, but she deserved it, you know? It's amazing how I will justify my speech. Isn't it so easy that sometimes you walk out of church and the first thing you do is use your words to analyze and critique a service sometimes. And we wonder sometimes why the spirit of God is not as strong or as potent as it could be. And Jesus isn't beating you up. He's actually quite the opposite, inviting you into deeper spirit life. He's going, hey, I don't want you to compromise because the enemy wants you to go, it's just one word. It's just one thing. It's just a little bit of me being silent. And Jesus goes, I don't want that for you. I want your faith to come alive in new and fresh ways, but it doesn't happen with compromise. And this is what's happened with the church. They were bold and they were faithful, but somewhere they slipped just a few degrees. So let me do this as we close. If if you're in this place, let me just say this might be the most important thing I can close with. If you're anything like me, sometimes I hear these messages on compromise and I'm like, that's it, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna beat this struggle, I'm gonna give all this money and you get adrenaline and you get pumped up, you're like, I'm gonna pray all night and then you just get done and you're like, this is exhausting, I can't do it. What you need is not spiritual adrenaline, what you need is spiritual transformation. What we don't need is more pumping ourselves up, what you need is the spirit of God to give you a new heart and a new life. That's why I find New Year's resolutions so interesting because it's not like we need new rhythms, what we need is a new heart. And so as we end, what I wanna do is I don't want you to walk away feeling like you gotta do a bunch of stuff. I'm just saying, if you're in the spot where God is awakening you, the spirit of compromise, then your one job is to seek him, to follow him, to run after him. And when you do that, the spirit of God will bring new life and new power as you follow and seek him, amen? Amen. So here's what I wanna do as we close. If you would, if you're open to it, just as a symbol that you are letting the spirit have his way in your life, if you just open your hands, I'm just gonna pray that whatever it is that the Holy Spirit might be drawing to your attention, that you would give that to him and that he would begin to transform your heart so that you desire him in new and fresh ways. Holy Spirit, we thank you. We thank you for your goodness and your mercy. We pray today that as you bring things to our attention, that there, if there is any bit of compromise in our lives, that God, we would give that to you and that your spirit would cause us to desire you and seek you and awaken to you. God, we pray against guilt or shame. We pray against trying to motivate ourselves in our own strength. I pray that your spirit would give us spiritual eyes to see and spiritual ears to hear you in new and fresh ways. God, I pray you would awaken us to the depths of your love and your life that would cause us not to strive and perform for what we already have in you today. So we open our hands as a symbol of our open hearts. So Jesus, we love you. We thank you that your mercies are new each and every day. It's in your amazing, mighty, wonderful name we pray. Everyone agreed and said, Amen. Hey, as we close out, two things and then we'll be done. Grab a card on the way out. Also, if you have any prayer requests, we're gonna have prayer counselors up front. They'd love to pray for you. You guys are dismissed. We'll see you next week.